Sarah, thank you so much for joining us today. I understand that you were here earlier on campus, so mm-hmm. can you tell us why that was? Yeah, uh, so Phi Alpha Theta is the History Honor Society on campus, and they uh, put together a panel of what can I do with my history degree, mm-hmm. which is a great question for history majors. I feel like of all the majors, I think historians struggle the most with mm-hmm. thinking outside the box about what's possible with a history degree. Um, most of us tend to get kind of myopia into academia and education, and so it was a really great discussion. The students were had a lot of great questions, and it was good to brainstorm with them. And you've been part of that society since... I joined when I was a student, so okay. I, I, it might be a lifetime thing. I think I've, I've always been a member. <laughs> so they just invite you back to campus for like different things to talk about? Yeah. Okay, that's pretty interesting. So since it was a history thing, you did graduate in 05 with a history mm-hmm. degrees and a focus in religious studies. Yes. So what sparked that interest? Talk, tell me about that. Uh, history for me, it, it honestly isn't more complicated than it was the subject I loved most when I was in high school. So I knew I would go to college when it came time to pick a major. I'm like, what can I handle studying for four years. That was the extent of the, the forward thinking that went into that decision. It was a really good decision. I'm glad I did it. Um, so, yeah, <laughs> that, was, that was the extent. And then you got your master's from Wheaton College in religious studies. So mm-hmm. where did that come from then? Yeah. So while I was at Cal State Fullerton, uh, my mentor in the history department was Ronald Breitfeld. Uh, we all called him Doc. It was just understood in the history department at the time. I was here from 01 to 05. I, I'm it's been a while since I've been here on <laughs> campus. Um, but Doc was the quintessential history grandpa type. Mm-hmm. He, he had the white beard, the glasses, the very first class I ever took with him. I was a freshman. Um, he walked into class, and I had heard about this man. He had a reputation that I heard about when I was in high school. as just an amazing historian. His specialty was uh, the Lincoln era, Civil War era. He walked into class, pulled out a, uh, a yellow... Uh, pad of paper that had all of his notes on it. And I'm sitting there as a student thinking, this could be very dull and boring. And, and <laughs> he's just going to read his notes. And he started reading his notes, but they're, they're his brain and his heart. And after about 10 minutes, you just got enveloped into the storyteller that he was. So it wasn't monotone like you would no, expect it to be. No, no, no. It was like you would imagine sitting at your grandfather's knee mm-hmm. and hearing stories about, about history. And he, it all came alive. He was an amazing teacher. Interestingly, he... He was considered, he is considered, is uh, considered an expert in Lincoln and the Civil War in okay. you know, that academic area in mm-hmm. academia. But he's never published a book that I know of. His emphasis was always he wanted to be a teacher. He was always passing on that knowledge and passing on those stories. And um, I can talk to any alum I went to school with, and we all still have stories about Doc. So um, I don't remember what the original question was, but how did history go? So uh, he really developed that love of story mm-hmm. in me. Um, I did some of my best. Uh, research projects under him, et cetera, and then uh, he was the one who inspired me to go on and study uh, church history at Wheaton College. Um, it was, I, I come from that faith community, from, from the Christian faith, and I find most people, in whatever faith community they're a part of, know the piece that they grew up with. That, that's, that's their entire context for that particular faith. And when you step out and study the broader history of it, God gets bigger, the tradition gets bigger, and I think there's a lot more of that understanding across some of those traditions, mm-hmm. uh, which I love studying. It didn't necessarily lead right into career path, but it made me a better human being in I a see. lot of ways. Uh, so, yeah. <laughs> Once you start talking to me about career, history is not going to play as big a role, <laughs> but it plays a huge role in my formation mm-hmm. as, a, as a learner and as a, as a colleague. Yeah. So let's talk about the President Scholar. How did that happen to you? I think it's six or seven scholar programs at Cal State Fullerton currently. I think when I was a student, there were maybe two or three. Okay. Um, these are programs that various donors have endowed, continue to fund, et cetera, but it really allows uh, different students with different abilities coming in 
to be supported in, in different ways. So the President of Scholars is the oldest. We are the first uh, program in the Cal State system. We were the, the model that a lot of other Cal States built their President of Scholars program on. Uh, I'm not gonna remember the year, sometime in the 70s, late 70s that it was founded, if I remember correctly. Um, but it's a program that high school seniors can apply for when they're coming into college. Uh, it's, it combines uh, academic record, community service, leadership, um, and just kind of a, a, I'm gonna sound like I'm bragging when I say this, but a, a higher level of engagement, thinking about the world, a desire to really um, lean in. So the scholars as a group at any given season are highly engaged individuals uh, that are often called on to represent the university as students. Uh, I was part of the largest class. Uh, my class was, I think, 36 students came in. Normally it's more like anywhere from 15 to 25 is a normal class, I think. Uh, so at any given time there's 75 to 100 President Scholars on campus and just they're great. I'm, I'm very involved in the alumni club and um, just some of the most stellar individuals I've ever met. I see. So does the President Scholar Club take into account certain things like say the major you're trying to get into mm -hmm. or other work that you're doing on campus or mm -hmm. how does that work? It does. It's, it's across all majors. Uh, there, there tend to be trends. We, uh, the, the alumni club is always curious to see how, what, uh, what are our scholars that are graduating this year yeah. heading toward. We're definitely starting to see more of the STEM fields and okay. um, nursing has been a big one. But yeah, it's across majors. Mm -hmm. uh, there's expectations uh, when you're a student as far as volunteering together. So um, that comes into play. And uh, I know you did very well in college. You had a fantastic GPA at that time. Thanks. Right? <laughs> so, I had to do over again. <laughs> Could I do it again? <laughs> but so in doing that, was that required of you or were there certain expectations that came with it? Yeah, we did have to maintain a certain GPA. I couldn't tell you what it was, but it was high. Uh, so Dean's List was just a given. You had to no. make Dean's List. That was a bare minimum. No pressure. Yeah. Uh, so yes, there, occasionally there will be a scholar that uh, college does not go well for and, and they lose their scholarship. But most of us, oh, okay. we have a lot of support to make sure we meet those expectations mm -hmm. uh, and that community of scholarship. So what do you think the goal is of a president with the students on campus? Because obviously oh, they have the overhead mm -hmm. uh, things management to take care of, but yeah. with the students in particular, mm -hmm. what do you think mm. their goal should be as in their time as president? See, I want to make that a topic of dinner conversation. Come The okay. next D12, we'll, we'll, we'll have that conversation. <laughs> yeah. um, I've spent some time in my career around higher education and administration, mm -hmm. and, and I have a level of familiarity with what it takes to run a university, yeah. and it's a lot that it is the type of thing I can't imagine having a good night's sleep. <laughs> it's big and, and yeah. any president has to prioritize where his or her care is gonna go. Mm -hmm. um, and we've, and I think that's the case of a president of any institution really, because uh, you can't care about everything. I think presidents have to figure out how, where their engagement points with students are gonna be. We were lucky with, with uh, Dr. Gordon and, and um, with uh, Fram now that there has been that, that engagement. I think just making sure that there are points of connection with different student groups so you get that cross-section of what students are experiencing on campus because that's that's your customer that's your product yeah um, and those are a lot of human beings who are trusting their education to ultimately you and the board and keeping those checkpoints and to, to be able to gauge uh, is really important more from that analytical standpoint but I think presidents who have those relational points with students are also going to be more content presidents. I think if you're trying to run a university without that that love and care, and you're gonna you're gonna lose the reason you exist. Yeah. Uh, and so I, I love seeing the pictures of Fram and Julia at, at basketball games and baseball games and all the, all of the places that they make sure they're part of student life. I love that they made that commitment. I think that he is a happier president. I imagine <laughs> because of that. Yeah, and it's 
even if when they're not alumni, they still partake in things where alumni would be mm -hmm. a part of and students and mm -hmm. you almost forget that they didn't go to this university because of mm -hmm. how well they are. Like the honorary titans. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, totally. Because <laughs> they put so much time and effort and just mm -hmm. love into the university and the students yeah. that go here yeah. to the point where you just expect them, you're like, Oh, they didn't go here. It just you, you yeah. just think that it would be something that they did. Well I've also I've worked at a university that I was not an alum of and from that perspective I love university culture. I love as a space in our in our world that is dedicated to learning and growing and transforming, and there's it's just a different ecosystem. Um, I think those spaces become contagious for everybody who works there and interacts. I, you know, I've interacted with plenty of people here in the alumni house who are not alums, but they care about us and our experience and, and support our loyalty as titans in beautiful ways. Mm -hmm. So going back to that, you t you taught at Vanguard University mm -hmm. for eight years as an interim professor. So what? What made you want to teach in the first place, and then why mm -hmm. Vanguard? Just briefly, my career journey. So I, yeah, history major here, got my master's in history, figured that I would go on into academia. I had every intention of following my master's or the PhD program and being faculty somewhere. <laughs> that did not work out very well. That was, um, that was the biggest experience of failure I've had in my life, and classically, you know, failure is also a great teacher. Um, I didn't get into any of the PhD programs I applied to, and so I came home from the Chicago area, got a job as an administrative assistant at Vanguard. It was, it was, you know, just sending out resumes everywhere. And that was the one that hired me. So that was the, my first job. And I was working for the CFO at the time, which, you know, history majors who work for CFOs. Sure, sure, no problem. Um, but I learned a ton working under him. Uh, to, just little little tip, um, if you want to get into an industry, being an administrative assistant to a C-suite executive is a brilliant place to get in the door because you end up by extension, doing a lot of their job with them, mm -hmm. and you learn a ton. And so, um, I, funny story, I was making copies one day, and the uh, pro, uh, assistant provost at the time, I believe, came in and was chatting about a, a faculty member who had just taken a, a job at another university and having to fill his classes, and turned to me and was like, you have a master's in history, right? You want to teach a class? Yes. <laughs> what the heck just happened? Because um, in, in my world, you know, there are a lot of unemployed PhDs, let alone unemployed uh, people with their masters. And yes, I would love to be an adjunct professor. Sure, great, sign me up. So a week later, I was teaching a, a, my first uh, research writing class and had no idea what I was doing. Great learning curve. Um, but went on to teach about one a semester for eight years, taught uh, research writing and, and church history there. And absolutely loved it. Loved every minute in the classroom. Maybe not every minute, but most minutes in the classroom because of that, that engagement. Um, but I discovered along the way that if I had pursued that full time, I would have been miserable. I see. Um, which you make you. There's a lot of discoveries you can't you can guess at, but you can't really make in college. You have to get into the work world and figure out what works for you, what doesn't. For me, I need. I'm, I'm very operations minded, so give me systems to administer and operate, and also a, a learning environment. That's that's an ideal combination for me, and so I, I kind of try and look for that combination wherever I go. But um, if I had been teaching full-time, I would have gone a little crazy. Bless the people who do it. So there's a talk about people have certain skills, but there's also luck involved with a lot of things oh, yeah. that happen. Mm -hmm. So that seems like it's something that happened in this case, where you were probably mm -hmm. skilled for the, for the task mm -hmm. at hand, but it was also just an opportunity that came out of nowhere for yeah. it. Yeah. Um, it's going to sound very cliche to say you, know, you have to know someone. Mm -hmm. It's very true. Uh, I was, when I was sitting with the Phi Alpha Theta students earlier, we were having a conversation about like, how do you get indoors? I'm like, honestly, 
you get the entry-level job and you go from there. Things develop organically. You look for those opportunities. You look for mentors who can open doors for you. And you hope you're in the copier room at the right moment. Yes, there are, there are definitely those moments that are fortuitous that, that, that change a direction. Um, but a lot of it is showing up and looking for the opportunities, being observant, being proactive with them. And knowing that not every single one is going to put you in the place you want to be in. Sometimes yeah. there's detours. And I'm going to sound like a very cliche, <laughs> broken record. Very no, simple, but, it's, but a, it's a good it's true. message to it. Yeah. So I believe Vanguard is a very small university, right? I think it's, oh, I should remember this. It's been a couple of years, maybe 3,000 students. Yeah, it's around two to 5,000, yeah. I believe. Yeah. Which is significantly smaller than Kelsey oh, yeah. Fullerton. Oh, yeah. How big, how big was Kelsey Fullerton when you went here? Do you, do you know one? You know oh, I want to say like 33,000. Oh, okay. So I mean, what is it now? Uh, it's 40,000 right now. Yeah, that's, so that's about right. Oh, okay. Yeah, it was big. Yeah. yeah. So I'm like, Vanguard was like super small Sorry. compared to it. Yeah. So being a teacher there, well, do you know what year you taught or like what class level? Um, I, uh, I, research writing was a like 200 level course. Okay. And uh, church history, I think was 400 level. So okay. it varied. So like a little bit like freshman, sophomore, and then seniors of that too. Yeah. Okay, that's pretty interesting. You know what I want to touch on? A lot of people, like you just mentioned, we should find a mentor, and a lot of people say that we should look for someone who can mentor us. Mm -hmm. But how do we go about, like, mm -hmm. how did you go about finding a mentor, and who was mm -hmm. right, and how do you go about asking them mm -hmm. to mentor you in your life? I'm going to answer that question in reverse by mm -hmm. starting with an encouragement of people to look for the people you can mentor. I see. Wherever you happen to be in your life, someone else needs you to help them get there. The mentor I had, she was the vice president of the University of Anson at, at Vanguard when I started working for her. I was her administrative assistant for two years, and she gave me my first management position. Um, I, I vividly remember as I had worked with her close enough that we had a very personal relationship. She invited me over to her house one night, poured us both a glass of bourbon, because she's Southern. I'm like, oh, this is, okay, yes, great. And, uh, and proceeded to give me my, my first management position. It was just one of those moments, I feel like it happens more for men than women. It was such a great mm -hmm. moment of her saying, I've trained you, I know you can do this job, you will learn on the job. You know, you, you, don't, you can't do it today as is, but um, it, was, it was brilliant. She had, she poured into me over the course of like two years to get me to that position. And I wouldn't be where I am today without her. So I look for those same moments now in my, cause I'm a director now and I have similar people who work, who are junior colleagues in my department who I can similarly help pay attention to things and help think about things differently that otherwise they may not engage with it that way. Yeah. Um, so I think it starts with people who are willing to be mentors. Um, but I notice in my life, I'm, I tend to be very self-sufficient, self-motivated, and I often, and, and what, my pride gets in the way a lot in seeking out those mentors. So um, I, I need to actively be doing that. And, but yeah, to your question, oh, lots of different ways and, and that's a hard question to answer. Um, it's just like a right time, right person, right kind place. Of. Sometimes it's very intentional and you know, the, the world of LinkedIn being what it is, there's sometimes that seeking out someone in a job that you want to figure out how to get to and trying to find a connection with them. If there's someone who can make, a, the, the world of making a warm introduction, if you can get someone to introduce you to that person, amazing. All right, so let's touch on you being a foster parent. You recently became a certified mm -hmm. foster parent. So what was the reason for you doing that? Because I know there was a connection with, in a lot of the interviews that I saw and then writing pieces that you were part of, mm -hmm. You mentioned that it was like a significant part and then something like that. So, so fostering, um, it's been a, on my heart for about a decade. Um, I did a service trip when I was uh, first working at Vanguard, took a student uh, service team over to Latvia. And 
that particular trip just had an impact on my heart from the standpoint of um, the ways that kids grow up when they are neglected or they don't have adults in their life who are bringing them up. And I'm someone, I am, I am our, our hearts as human beings are local. We can care about the world and there's a lot that we can do to affect the world, but ultimately, what are we doing in our neighborhood with our families, et cetera? And so um, I've, as an adult, I've, I've never had a strong desire to have biological kids, but I knew I wanted to be a parent. And so this is something that's developed for a long time. I've been a part of um, both faith communities and, and social communities that um, really lean in and care for, for foster kids. And it was a long journey to get to a point where I knew I could do it as a single mom living in Orange County. Um, but I got certified last July and I just got uh, my first foster child placed with me about three weeks ago. Mm-hmm. It's current news. Um, it is 100% the hardest thing I've ever done in my life, may ever do in my life. 100% rewarding, 100% hard. Um, I look at her and her life and I'm amazed by, and I've known many other foster kids and, and adults who have been foster kids and um, where they can achieve that resiliency and, and thrive and succeed is extraordinary. The stories are, are absolutely inspiring. So one of our other scholarship programs on campus is the Guardian Scholars. Um, one of my best friends is a Guardian Scholar from, from our days at Kelsey Fullerton. And the ways that we, um, just the, the stories, um, yeah, the stories of how she's thrived and how um, other Guardian Scholars have thrived are just, they, I'm, I'm in awe of their stories. And I believe President Gordon had like a role in it and yeah. was working yeah. on that. Yes. So that's great to hear and congratulations on Thank having you. a foster child. And Thank yeah, you. it must be tough trying to get in this new environment and working mm-hmm. around it and all that. So Anybody who plops into parenthood for the first time, it's, yeah. it's just a shock to the system. It's like, you know you're going to be running a marathon, but you can't train for it. Mm-hmm. And then suddenly it's there. And in my case, it's an 11-year-old fully formed girl. And it's crazy. Yeah. Uh, but I have it's a privilege to get to learn how her brain operates and what she reacts to and the way she interacts with her world and, and figure out how to help her. Mm-hmm. She's extraordinary. And everything I'm feeling emotionally and, and the moments of panic I have, I know are a hundred times more intense for her given what she's been through. So uh, I'm amazed by her. So you kind of have to step up and you're kind of in a mentor role now where she has to look mm-hmm. up to you, not just as a parent, but someone who is successful in life and someone who can just encourage her to be the best she can be. I hope so. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe that a lot of life happens when things are modeled, um, that you have to be able to, you, you can't be what you can't see. Yeah. So when you have access to someone who is doing something or um, engaging with their social circles in a certain way, you, you learn by watching, you learn by doing. So I'm, yeah, I'm hoping that the world I'm opening up to her is something that is helpful to her. And similarly, she's going to teach me a lot about, yeah. about her world. And um, But parenting, it's, Thinking about the difference between parenting and mentoring, it might, my head's been on this a lot lately because as a parent, there's that role of providing care whether they like you or not. <laughs> mentoring has, has comes with a little bit more freedom. Mm-hmm. Um, so parenting, it, it's, it's a very different role from anything I've ever experienced and I'm learning the, the nuances of that in real time. Uh, but I'm grateful that she has other mentors in her life. So there's kind of that, that literally wraparound support system of the roles that adults play in helping her succeed. And I'm not the only one. If I was, she wouldn't stand a chance. <laughs> so there's that yeah. it take, it, There's that concept of it takes a village. Mm-hmm. It does. So let's go back to when you were a history major. You said that you were thinking about it, what would take you four years to graduate, and you were only thinking for those four years. 
So after graduating, what, was, what were your thoughts of, I'm a history major, I'm not in a STEM field, and you know that there are very limited opportunities in that mm -hmm. field, so what went through your mind like right after mm -hmm. graduating? To some extent, I wasn't even smart enough to realize that. Like, there's, there's kind of that, um, I think I had blinders on just a little bit, and I'm, I'm grateful even the conversation I had this afternoon with our history students, those blinders are not there. They're very aware in, in the world they're going into that STEM professions are the ones we're all talking about, that we're all training toward. But um, but we can't we can't lose our, our humanities and social sciences. If we do, our, our ability to be human and, and navigate that goes away. Uh, those are just as essential. Will they make as much money? Not always. There are definitely ways. Um, you know, uh, one of our history professors was talking about two students he went to school with. One is now a hedge fund manager, and one's a surgeon. So, you know, being a history major, you can still go on and study anything, do anything, learn anything. Um, history majors are amazing researchers. They are good about getting in there, figuring it out, organizing information, processing information, creating a way to communicate that a lot of the time. So uh, it's just, it's, it takes a little more creative thinking, I think. I think STEM fields are a little bit more career directed sometimes, where if I'm studying this, I'm going to apply these skills and go into this job. And often the humanities and social sciences are a little bit more flexible, but you have to also be a little more creative. Mm -hmm. So tell me about where you work now. So I'm the director of development for Think Together. Um, during my time at Vanguard University, I got trained in the world of uh, fundraising and development in the university world. It's called University Advancement. Uh, but it's, it's its own industry. Most people, you don't major in, in development. You yeah. wander into it at some point. Uh, and in fact, our uh, vice president for university advancement here at Cal State Fullerton is, um, was also a history major when he okay. was a student I found out today. Makes sense. <laughs> um, but uh, so I, uh, Think Together is a large educational nonprofit in California. We serve over 200,000 students throughout the state every year. Um, our space, uh, we partner with schools to change the odds for kids. There's about a third of our kids in public school in California are, are on the wrong side of the achievement gap, which is a startling number. And it's not for, for any lack of the school's best intentions of trying to use their resources to the best of their abilities. So we are a solution-oriented organization that's helping them try and close that gap. Um, that involves after-school programs, support services, uh, getting into schools and, and working with teachers to um, fine-tune what they're doing to serve their student population, because a lot of times teachers are not um, as well-equipped to deal with the different demographics, et cetera. So um, it's an amazing organization, brilliant people who are trying to change their world in a big mm -hmm. way, and it's inspiring. So you always have like the sense of giving back to students, whether it's mm -hmm. in this university or in yeah. general with nonprofits. Yeah. The theme. <laughs> so why is it important to you to give back to you? Why is it just important to give back? I think the value proposition for education is an easy one to make. You, mm -hmm. you, it's very hard to get anywhere without a good education. And it's something that is you know, giving everybody an equitable shot at whatever their future is going to be. That, that takes education. And I love that. America as a nation is has always had a high value on public education. It's it's we may not invest enough money in it at any given time. I, I I'm not going to get political about that, but it's a value for us as a nation, as a culture, and so you know, I I fundraise for it. That's my job, um, and it's a pretty easy conversation to have with, with sitting across from just about any donor. Of think back to your education. Tell me about what you experienced. Tell me about how your life would have been different if that teacher hadn't been there. If that subject hadn't been taught if you couldn't write like any any of those things yeah. and yeah, I mean, it's, it's every door follows from that mm -hmm. so yeah education is 100 percent my heart
And you're also on the board for alumni of President Scholars. Yeah, yeah. So our alumni club is really focused on mentorship, on giving back to support the program, because we were given so much as scholars. You know, yeah. we, we all got full rides. We Most of us graduated from college without debt, which is, again, an extraordinary gift in this world. So uh, giving back mentoring and, and gathering. There's, there's a lot of that mentorship that just happens in the context of social events that are great. So yeah. it's, been, it's been great fun. And it makes the full circle, like you said, with mm-hmm. any big person, their education is something that always stuck with them. And they can realize if I didn't get back or if someone didn't get back to the university when I was there, then my life exactly. would have been so much different. So I should exactly. get back to the university yeah. there. I will say this because I've spent some time around alumni relations at, mm-hmm. at Vanguard and here. Um, if alumni are not giving back to their university within the first couple of years of graduating, it's very hard to get them back as donors. I see. It's something we fight for you know, across the university advancement and alumni relations. It is, it's both obvious and hard to get, to get alumni to give back. So I encourage any alum listening to this, if you got anything out of Cal State Fullerton, you should be giving back. Um, it's, you know, yeah, it's that cycle. It's really important. Uh, we had a, a guest previously. She mentioned that if, since we have 300,000 alumni, mm-hmm. approximately, if each one donated $100 a year, that would be $30 million a year to Cal State Fullerton. What are your thoughts on that? Do you think it is doable do for it. alumni? Yeah. I, think I mean, it, it, like, let's be conservative about that. If, if 50% were able to give $100 a year, which I guarantee of our 300,000, at least 50% yeah. can give 100 a year. Like we, yeah, numbers wise, we could be exponentially serving students days. and getting them equipped for, and you know, m- m- I don't know what the percentage is, but the majority of students that graduate from Cal State Fullerton become part of our community right here. Mm-hmm. So it's community building. Yeah. Uh, I, I run into Titans everywhere I go. My, uh, my kiddo's um, youth partner is currently working on her MFT here. We had that, you're a Titan, you're a Titan moment the other day, which is great. And, um, our CFO at Think Together is a Titan alum, all the way down to our program leaders. We have so many who are, who are either currently studying or alums, and they're part of the fabric of our community. Mm-hmm. So I want to know some advice that you would give to, uh, let's say, a history student who's mm-hmm. in their last year, or maybe in another art mm-hmm. degree where they're struggling to understand, or maybe even it's a high school student or an undeclared major who's kind of debating on, should I go into a STEM field because it pays a lot, or mm-hmm. should I go with where my heart is mm-hmm. because it's maybe in arts or history or English mm-hmm. or something like that? It's really hard to answer that question in a generalist way um, because I, I, we're living in the world of education I live in. Yeah, STEM is incredibly important from the standpoint of making sure our all the way for, you know for K through 12, if students are well prepared and, and understand their STEM field so they can make an educated choice about what they want to study, we're in better shape. At the college level, um, it's such a personal question. Like yeah. I mean, what you major in, everybody, every student kind of goes through that journey of, of figuring it out and often changing it halfway through, yeah. which, is, which is great. Because um, college is that place of kind of constant discovery. You're constantly interacting with, oh, that's new. Ooh, do I like that? You know. Um, but I think asking the questions of what are you consistently curious about and what can you see being content doing for your entire life? Yes, we change careers several times in our lives, most mm-hmm. of us. Um, so there's still flexibility in that. But that was a piece of advice I was given when I was thinking about trying again for PhD program is if you do this, like you are saying, that's an investment for the rest of my life. Is that worth studying? And for me at the time, it wasn't. Like that decision played itself out really well. So yeah, if, if, if you see something in the STEM field that you know there's gonna be that satisfaction and contentment in, fantastic. Um, but you should not be afraid to go for something that gives you a bachelor's of art, a bachelor of arts and um, history, English, political science, Sociology, anthropology, all of these are incredibly valuable to our world and we need them just as much. I see. And then to end it off, is there any 
maybe two pieces of advice that you would give in general to students at Cal State Fullerton or something that you would do differently or if you look back and said, I would, I would focus more on this or maybe touch mm-hmm. on this a bit that you would tell students right now to do. So two things that you would. I'd be strategic about class projects. Um, I think there's just kind of the sense often of you, you take the instruction the professor gives you as far as the topic you're going to be studying and you do that because it's an assignment. And if we as students are thinking about projects a little bit more strategically. So like I have a chance to do a project that's gonna really get me into the, this particular subject so I figure out if I like it. Mm-hmm. You, you know, use those where you can because you're gonna be able to explore things. Because time when you're in college, yes, most of us are working part-time or full-time to support ourselves at this point, but that dedicated, protected time of study is something you don't really get any other time in your life. Yeah. It is hard for me to sit down and read a book to learn something right now in my life. Um, so using it well, being intentional with it. It's not just taking instruction, it's also taking that, a little bit more of that initiative mm-hmm. to explore things. Be an explorer. There you go. There's my slogan for the day. Be an explorer. <laughs> that doesn't sound dorky at all. Mm-hmm. So thank you so much for joining us today, Thanks Sarah. I really appreciate you coming here with your advice and wisdom, especially giving back to students at Cal State Fullerton and just students around and education in, in particular. My pleasure.